The human race has put itself in a really tricky situation. We're facing several existential threats that could make everything fall apart, like climate change, the natural environment getting destroyed, pandemics, nuclear weapons, and if those aren't bad enough, we're inventing new technology like artificial intelligence and genetic engineering that could be insanely dangerous. On today's show, I hope to persuade you that these are important and that one country alone can't solve these issues. And I'll point us towards some potential solutions globally that might be on the scale of what could actually solve these things. I hope you enjoy it. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate it's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries, we are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. This is Shelby Murtis. So I'm glad you're joining me today. This is exciting. Today is the first episode of this big adventure that I'm going on, the start of this show. Uh, we're going to save humanity together. It'll be fun. So uh, let's do it. So later on in this process down the road, I'll usually have guests on the show, interviewing a lot of smart uh, people around these issues. But for right now, it's just me. Um, I've got some, sh some thoughts and information I want to share with you uh, to chew on. And I'll get you oriented toward what I'm doing here. So the purpose of this show is to inspire international cooperation to solve urgent problems that threaten the end of civilization. Um, at least, you know, we're facing things that could give us catastrophic suffering and the death of billions of people. And I promise you I'm not exaggerating. I'm not just trying to be dramatic. Um, it's serious what we're facing. So these are all global problems that we have to deal with. So we need global solutions. My biggest priority in this is to give us a stronger United Nations that could help humanity come together and make good decisions, and that has the ability to carry out the good work that we need. Um, but there's more beyond the United Nations, and at all levels of government and society, we need action on these important things. But a big focus of this show is going to be the international um, front. So in a little bit, I'll get into why we need global solutions and what that might look like. But for right now, let me just talk about the threats and what those are and what we're facing. So we've got climate change, um, which is happening now. It's already underway. It's not just a future issue. Uh, we're seeing the effects with the wildfires and sea level rise and the glaciers melting. Um, it's starting to give us more destructive storms. And over time, this will be, you know, beyond deaths, will be lots of money and resources to keep rebuilding after those storms. We're going to see water shortages and food shortages. 
we're going to see a lot more refugees on the move um, because people are in places that are too hot to live and there won't be enough food. Um, and all these things will result possibly in economic collapse and violence due to these various instabilities. So, um, yeah, this is starting and is likely to get worse, especially if we don't do anything bold to deal with this. We're also facing environmental destruction uh, on a huge scale. So right now we're in the middle of the world's sixth mass extinction. So this is the sixth time on Earth over these billions of years where we've seen a massive die-off of nature. So right now we're seeing um, species go extinct faster than at any time in the last 65 million years since the end of the dinosaurs. Um, the end of the dinosaurs was due to a big asteroid hitting the Earth and caused a big cataclysm. But this one is human-induced through our activities. Um, so our ecosystems are falling apart and starting to not function well. And this is all happening due to our overconsumption of resources, uh, de land development, farming, chemicals, pollution, and now intensified by climate change. So all this leads to food and water shortages, disease pandemics, health problems from all the chemicals and pollution we're putting out there, um, and there could possibly be more problems that we don't anticipate. During humans' time on the planet so far, we have not seen nature destroyed this quickly. So we're in new territory, and we don't fully know what that's going to do to us. Uh, another risk is pandemics. So scientists tell us that pandemics are more likely. COVID-19 right now is a huge problem, but future ones may be far worse. Um, this one is bad, but in a sense, we might have got lucky because future ones may be more deadly, spread more quickly. Um, it could be really bad. And we could have pandemics that hit over and over again, which could be destabilizing. So we do not have adequate systems right now to prevent pandemics and to overcome them when they do occur. Um, systems within countries and certainly globally in terms of global cooperation, we just, you know, we're not ready for this. And we're seeing um, the world is stumbling right now as it deals with COVID. Um, it's just showing us that we're not ready for the future ones and we have a lot of work to do. Another risk is technologies, uh, especially genetic engineering and artificial intelligence, but there's many more. Our technology is getting far more powerful lately and advancing more quickly. So humans' typical way with technology is that people can invent whatever they want and put it out into the world, and then we deal with the damage later once it's already done. Um, this is how we got climate change. This is destruction of nature, harmful chemicals in the environment. We've got tons of nuclear waste with nowhere to dispose of it, and much more. Um, so far, we have not always handled our technology well. We haven't dealt with the consequences of it. So 
right now there's things that are even more powerful being invented and if we follow the course we have so far without thinking it through and putting safety precautions in place first then some really bad things could happen um, you know the stuff that's highly dangerous and could destabilize our economy our politics our way of life and like I said there's, there's just not safety plans in place for some of these things Another threat is war. Um, over the last several decades, war has gotten gradually better in terms of deaths, in terms of its uh, you know, magnitude, but still a serious problem. Um, and the wars that happen consume tons of resources and consume the attention span that policymakers and the world need in order to solve our other existential, existential threats. Basically, it's a huge distraction, and it hurts our ability to cooperate as a world. So we're at a time in human history where we need all hands on deck working to solve our existential threats, but instead we get bogged down in wars and conflict and disagreements, and it's highly unproductive and dangerous. We also still have thousands of nuclear weapons um, on high alert, pointed at each other, ready to be launched. And this is just, um, there's a lot of risks here. Um, the current setup seems to rely on leaders of countries that all have sanity and good ethics. And I have doubts about that. Um, you see just a couple years ago, between the United States and North Korea, there was a war of words. There was uh, threats upon each other uh, with nuclear weapons. In that situation, I didn't see a lot of sanity and ethics involved. Um, and even in peacetime, miscommunications can happen and accidents can happen. And there have been accidents around nuclear weapons. And we got incredibly lucky that it didn't turn into a big catastrophic situation. Another threat is around migration and refugees. With climate change, in the next 50 years, we could have 2 billion people in places where it's too hot to live. That's like one in four people on the earth that may have to move or die. And the world has never seen that massive amount of movement of people before. So, so far as a world, we've had far fewer refugees than that and haven't handled it well. There's been a lot of conflict around it. So if we have 2 billion people on the move, we're not ready for that. And we need to get ready. And then there's issues around the global economy. Um, the economy is far more globalized than ever and more interconnected. This has some benefits, like there has been more prosperity and a better quality of life for many people around the world, but it's destroying nature. Our global economy seems designed to just grind up nature and turn it into disposable things that we don't need. Um, it's harming nature in, in some places, putting incredible pressure on some natural places um, by over-extracting resources and, you know, the chemicals and pollution and everything else. So it's very much an economic situation. 
Also, despite the world having just more economic resources than ever before, we're not getting those resources to where they're needed. There's um, a really intense um, inequality between rich and poor individuals, but then between rich and poor countries. And so there's huge amount of resources in some places, but it's not getting to where it's needed in order to solve the existential threats that we have. So we need to figure out a new economy. So among these several issues I've just uh, named, any one of them alone could be catastrophic. They're all quite serious, but we have many. We have them all at the same time. So some people might say, well, which one of those is most important? Which one should we work on first? And we really cannot think about that way. Think about it that way. We just can't because we need to move quickly on all of them at the same time. We can't afford to not deal with one of those. So I want to just offer a comparison or a personal um, story that might help. So many years ago, I used to study a martial art called Aikido. Uh, it's a very peaceful martial art where you can subdue uh, an attacker without injuring them. It's pretty good stuff. But in class, we used to once in a while have a day where we would practice being attacked by everyone else in the class. So as I did this, I had like 10 people attacking me all at once. And it forces it forced me to really be aware of the entire situation. Because if I focus on one of those attackers too much, the other one is going to clobber me in the head. Like I have to be aware of everything around me because it's just an interconnected situation. So it's kind of like that with all these existential threats. If we focus too much on one of them, one of the other one is going to clobber us in the head. And so we have to see it all as an interconnected situation. And um, that's not only so that we don't leave one of them behind, but it's also because if we're going to truly solve them, we need to understand the interconnections so that we can have a more comprehensive approach. So let me give you some examples of these kind of interconnections and why it's all sort of the same situation. Um, so for example, the global economy right now is wrecking the climate and the environment. But climate and environment falling apart are about to wreck the economy. Nature is disappearing, but we need nature to stabilize the climate. Yet climate is starting to intensify the extinctions in the ecosystem breakdown. Those two are intertwined. And then destroying the environment causes more pandemics because pandemic, you know, disease comes from nature. Pandemics are horrible for the economy. Economic systems keep many people and countries poor. Right now we have 3 billion people, B, billion with a B, 3 billion people who do not have clean water or sanitation. 
that's real bad in the middle of a pandemic to have 3 billion people who can't even wash their hands, not let alone like don't have health care, don't have public health systems to deal with pandemics. And as we've said, pandemics are bad for the economy. There's this economic arms race that quickens technological change. Companies have huge incentives to make money, which means they have an incentive to rush products to market before testing them for safety and putting regulations and things in place first. So like artificial intelligence is coming along, which is super intelligent computers. These might be used in self-guided autonomous weapons that countries use. That could be the next arm, arms race, causing conflict and consuming resources. Advances in genetic engineering could be used to intentionally or accidentally create the next pandemic. And pandemics are bad for the economy. Climate change will have the worst impact on poorer people in hot places in the world who don't have the means to react to climate change. That will cause more refugees. War causes refugees too. Refugees in large numbers, if we don't manage it well, could destabilize countries, which could cause more war. Climate may also cause wars because of shortage of water and food. So we've got this collision of climate and refugee and food shortage and water shortage and warfare all together. So this kind of thing can be hard to deal with because it's complex. It's not easy at all. It can be overwhelming, but we have to get a handle on it anyway. And we have to resist the impulse to oversimplify this stuff. And we just have to dig in and pay attention and learn all we can. So I know that it's incredibly ambitious for me to take on all of these issues with this show, The Joy of Saving the Human Race, and other work that might happen around this show that I do. Um, some would say that it's downright crazy, but here's why I'm doing it. Uh, like I said, these things are all interconnected, so we all have to learn how to think about this in a comprehensive way. Also, I think underlying all of these issues is a similar psychology and a similar way that our systems are set up or not set up. It's like we need to really look at why is it we don't plan for the future collectively as a human race? Why do we allow dangerous situations to happen? Why aren't we focused more on safety? Why can't we cooperate better to deal with these issues? So really, you got to get to that issue in order to solve any of them. So I hope to solve it, and that helps with all of them. And then all these issues are great examples of why we need a stronger United Nations and more global cooperation generally. Um, these problems are so big that no one country alone can solve them. So let's tackle all of it. Why not? 
So let's talk about that global cooperation, um, which will happen largely through the United Nations, but again, through some additional systems. But I think UN requires a big focus. So far, there has not been nearly enough work to deal with these existential threats that I've been describing. But even when these things are talked about, the conversation is mostly on what individual countries can do to help, and not enough talk about improving international systems. And like I said, these are global problems that need global solutions. So this situation leads to some of the hopelessness that people can feel about these big existential threats. So people feel hopeless when they feel like there's no answer, there's no solution, there's nothing to be done about it. Um, there's this mismatch between our problems and the tools we have available. And so when we don't have adequate tools, people give up. So what I hope for in all this is that instead of giving up, that we dig in and we build the tools we need in order to solve these situations. So the United Nations could be a great focal point for international action. It's basically like, hey world, let's have a huddle, let's have one conversation, and let's make some plans on how to survive this mess. And everybody just get together and solve it. So governments around the world need to give the United Nations more responsibility and then more support in order to carry out that responsibility and do the good work that we need. So some quick background, because I know everyone doesn't pay attention to the United Nations like I do. So let's just get on the same page. The United Nations, it's a collection of bodies and agencies that do many things. So you might be most familiar with the UN General Assembly. That's like the hub of UN activity. You may have seen on the news um, big meetings where all the leaders of countries of the world get together and give speeches and such. Um, that's the UN General Assembly. There's also a Security Council, uh, a smaller set of countries, and they deal with issues of peace and security and warfare and the like. And then there are many organizations that carry out work on many fronts, like humanitarian aid, disaster uh, response, public health, access to food, economic development, education, and more. So this includes uh, the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, um, World Bank, UNICEF, the World Food Program, and several more. So when I talk here about the United Nations, I'm talking about this whole collection of organizations that are in the same um, sort of network here. So I want to just pause and start this by saying I have tons of respect for the United Nations and the people who work there. It's important work, and they do really often do amazing work with limited resources. Um, but the whole thing is just not as strong as we need it to be. One big reason is that it's underfunded and understaffed. So I want to share a few numbers with you so you have a context or understanding of this. 
So the entire United Nations budget annually is about $55 billion. Now that may sound like a large amount of money, but compared to some other things, it's pretty tiny. So compare that $55 billion with the United States military, which every year spends about $732 billion. That's 13 times the UN budget. So that's just the US military alone. The world spends on military $1.9 trillion, trillion with a T. So the world spends on its military 35 times the amount spent on the United Nations. So if spending is a reflection of our priorities, that tells me that the world is 35 times more interested in fighting than talking and cooperating. That's a big problem. So if we spent just a little bit of that military, we could double the United Nations budget. And now compare that UN budget with economic stimulus that has happened this last year since COVID broke out. Many governments around the world have been pumping money into the economy to keep it afloat. $20 trillion so far at the time of me recording this. $20 trillion with a T. So that is 367 times the United Nations budget annually. 367 times the UN budget. So I'm not disagreeing with this economic stimulus. I'm not saying it's a waste or shouldn't happen. But I'm just noticing that for years and years, we've been told that we can't afford a stronger United Nations, and we can't afford investments in protecting the environment or um, public health to avoid pandemics or dealing with the climate or a bunch of other things. We've been told over and over, well, we just don't have enough money. But somehow over the last year, governments found or just made $20 trillion that was not budgeted. So it just makes you think, you know, maybe we can afford the things we need. And certainly I think we could afford to double the United Nations budget. We've got plenty of money. So we just need the desire to spend it on the UN. Now, in the middle of these budget shortfalls, what's really uh, disheartening is that after disasters that happen or when a country sort of falls apart in a civil war or something, the UN and other agencies go around asking for donations. So they say, hey, please, world, this bad thing just happened. Can you all pitch in some money, please? Like, that's just tragic. I mean, the money should be there already. The world should be prepared for things to happen because they always do. We're always going to have more wars. We're always going to have more disasters. That's just the way the world works. So we should invest the money, have it there, have the supplies ready, hire the people. Let's be ready to roll instead of letting horrible things happen and then decide to do something and then start raising money. 
you're just behind. That's just not the way we should be working. So another problem that happens with the international um, systems is that conflict breaks out and sometimes horrible conflict and there's no clarity on what to do. So war breaks out somewhere and then countries say, oh my goodness, that's so bad. Like, what do we do? Instead of having plans in place ahead of time and agreeing like what's allowed in the world and what's not allowed in the world and what are we going to do if a particular thing happens and just be ready to dive in and fix it. Instead, you have situations break out like in Syria right now, in Yemen right now, just horrible devastation. Like those places are just getting destroyed and they're starving people with disease and everybody losing their homes and refugees. And it's just death, of course. It's a horrible situation. And so the international community just doesn't seem able to come together and solve this. And so instead of United Nations stepping in and solving it, they're sort of inactive or, in a, you know, incapable. At the same time, you've got multiple countries intensifying those conflicts. So you've got different countries supporting different sides of that local civil war and funneling weapons and resources in there that make the problem worse and make it even more violent. And so we have to have a different way of solving these things if we're going to make progress. Um, another example is in the 90s, we had the genocide in Rwanda, which is horrible. There were hundreds of thousands of people killed in that conflict. And the international community just sort of sat there and watched and couldn't figure out what to do. Um, more recently, in 2017, Myanmar um, drove the Rohingya out into neighboring Bangladesh. So the military of Myanmar went through the Rohingya areas. They burned villages, they raped women, they killed people, and they drove them out of the country. So right now there's about one million people living in refugee camps next door in Bangladesh. And nothing has really been done like there's some hand-wringing and there's some stern warnings and strong statements by people, but nobody's done anything to solve that. And it's just an atrocious thing that happened. Um, so like we need to get better at solving situations like that if we're going to have the world that we want. One important structural problem that leads to that kind of inaction is the way the UN Security Council is constructed. That's the, the portion of the United Nations that deals with peace and security issues. So the Security Council has 15 member countries. There are five permanent countries and then 10 that have temporary terms, time limited, that they countries rotate through those positions. So the five permanent countries on the Security Council are the United States, China, Russia, the United Kingdom, and France. Those five countries have a veto. That means 
any one of those five countries can stop action on anything it wants. So, you know, countries have used that veto to stop anything related to their own activities. So um, the United States, China, Russia have all engaged in behavior that is quite questionable um, or even illegal and certainly ethically challenging and have used the veto to stop any worldwide action on those things. Um, but then even related to, you know, their allies and partners um, in some of these, um, you know, war situations I described a moment ago, that Security Council members use their veto to just stop the UN from doing anything about it. And so it is not really, I don't see it as a helpful thing. It's just stops action and um, leads to the whole UN being not as effective as it could be. And also it's just that these five countries have a huge amount of clout. In, de in determining what the world does. Um, so even if you think that these five countries should have a veto and be able to block action and have disproportionate power in the world, I'm also not sure that these are the exact five countries that you want in that role. Um, I think, you know, any way you set it up, you would probably have the United States and Russia and China involved. You know, they're the world's uh, heavy hitters right now. The United Kingdom and France? I don't know. Um, I'm not criticizing them. Wonderful countries, great people. I, I don't mean to be critical, but I'm also not sure that those are the ones. I mean, this setup of those five countries has been in place over 70 years since the end of World War II. Basically, those are the ones that came out on top after World War II, and so that's how they got that role in the Security Council. But in the last 70-some years, the world has changed. So if you were to set it up now, you would consider including a country like India, which has the world's second largest population, or the world's third largest economy. Um, it's a huge country. Why not include it? Um, or you might include countries like Germany or Japan or Brazil, which have, you know, either large um, populations or strong economies, you know, all contenders. Uh, the Security Council includes no one from Africa or Latin America or the Middle East as permanent members with this kind of veto power and enormous clout. So it just doesn't seem to me like these five countries are the ones and that they should be able to just stop anything and keep the United Nations from acting when we really need it to be vigorous and active. Another problem I have with the United Nations um, is around climate change. So in 2015, the Paris um, Climate Accords, um, basically, you know, the countries came together and did work on the climate that was far beyond anything that had been done before. So it was definitely progress, and I have huge gratitude for all the people who were involved in that. But these were only voluntary offers by countries. Basically, everybody just came and said what they're willing to do 
but it's voluntary. There's nothing binding. There's no enforcement. There's no consequences if countries do not meet their goals. And historically, countries are notoriously bad at coming through on their promises. There's been a million times before where in the middle of some disaster or whatever situation, countries promise to put in a certain amount of funding and then they just don't come through. So countries have gone back on promises a bunch of times. And so having it purely voluntary and non-binding, I'm not sure that's strong enough. Also, even if everyone comes through on their commitments, the amount of those commitments is still not enough to control the climate in the way that's needed. We need far more commitments if it's actually going to get the climate under control. And five years later, carbon and, and greenhouse uh, gas emissions are still going up. So I'm still unsure whether the international community has the commitment that's necessary to get the climate under control. And I'm not sure if the United Nations is strong enough yet to really enact that and make it happen. So these problems that I've been describing are very frustrating, especially because we need so much better. Um, it's clear that the United Nations is not the healthy, vigorous organization that we need in order to address our existential threats that could make everything fall apart for humanity. Um, we need so much more. But I just want to say again, though, that I don't mean this to be overly critical of like the people who work at the United Nations. Because again, I think they're doing good things with limited resources, but this is more of an issue of the international community not committing to that process. Countries around the world committing to collaborate and solve problems together through that system. So it's just as much the blame is on a bunch of countries around the world for not really taking it seriously. And putting the fate of humanity ahead of their own country's interests, or at least as they perceive it. So, so many countries are just focused on what's best for them and not willing to collaborate on these hugely important problems that, um, you know, the fate, fate of humanity is at risk. So, all these kind of shortfalls um, and problems, some see it as a reason to ignore the United Nations and see it as useless and not worth um, investing in. I want us to see it the opposite way. I want us to strengthen this and make it a force for good and make it um, the kind of system that we need. So I don't want to just make the UN bigger and stronger, though. I want it to be better. So I want it, in addition to the sort of structural issues I've pointed out, I also want it to be more directly accountable to citizens around the world. So I want citizens to be able to vote for the people and the leaders who are involved in it. I want them to be, you know, involved in the discussions at the UN. 
um, citizens need to be engaged. And also I want the body to continue to be more effective and efficient so that as we give it more resources, the world knows that the funding will be used well and that it's a good investment um, to give more money to the UN to solve problems for us. I understand that what I'm suggesting here and what I'm hoping for is a really big shift in the way the world functions, in the way everybody thinks about these issues. I get it. It requires a lot of change, quickly. And I understand also that some people are going to think I'm naive, that I'm going to just assume that, oh yeah, we can all just get together and be happy and cooperate. I know that's a tall order, but I would argue, though, that we're naive if we think we can continue our current way of life without huge catastrophe happening. That's just as naive. Like, we can't continue this way or else everything's going to go to shit. And so we need some pretty big changes. And the kind of changes we need are making these systems and these tools that are capable of addressing global problems. So in order to make those changes will require a sort of citizen effort that we have not yet seen in the world. Like basically we need citizens around the world to band together and push for these types of changes. And we have not yet seen the kind of global grassroots um, citizen effort that is going to take to make this happen because we can't just have one country fix these systems. They're global. We need everybody in the world to pitch in. And that means citizens around the world pushing their governments to change their attitude and change their relationship with the international system. So um, right now, leaders of countries do what they do because they think they're best representing their citizens' interests and doing what their citizens want. So for everything to change, citizens have to tell their leaders, do it differently. Basically emphasize cooperation over like one country trying to get ahead of others and focus on itself. And it's a tall order, but it's doable. So if this were like a few decades ago, I might have thought it's impossible. But right now, we have the ability to rally citizens together around the world. We have an internet. We have communication tools. We even have the ability to translate languages through automated means to where like language is not a barrier. We can actually talk with each other. And so we have the tools in place to actually um, rally people around the world to push for changes and in a way that we've just not ever seen. So it makes me incredibly hopeful. So to do that, basically, um, we need our connection with each other as citizens around the world to be tighter and, and stronger than the conflicts between country governments. And so um, this is where we're at, and this is what we need to do. This show that you're watching now, The Joy of Saving the Human Race, is my contribution to that effort. I hope to push that along. And 
um, basically this show is a way for people around the world to understand these issues better and consider how they can get engaged and involved. So everybody has a different life. Everybody has different ability to make change in the world, but we all have something that we can do. So at the very least, we are all can be good consumers. We can be good citizens. We can be more knowledgeable about what's happening in the world so that our contribution or our impact on the world around us is more healthy than harmful. Um, but there are many additional ways that we can each make a difference. Um, whether that's at work through the companies we work for, the organizations we work for, or ways that we volunteer, or ways that we use our money. Some people have more money that they can use in helpful ways, um, you know, through research, through, there's a lot of different ways. So I'm not going to offer a one size fits all and tell you how you fit and what you should do. Because that's your responsibility to think through your life in how to best be in the world. And everybody's got a different situation. But I'm going to bet that there's something that you can do. And I hope that you'll stay engaged with this show as we all think this through together and figure out how can we um, make the changes happen that we need. And then in addition to with this show exploring what each of us as individuals can do, I want to explore what we can do together. How can we build this citizen movement around the world to make changes happen? Um, when bunches of people band together, how can we push for the changes we need from our governments, from our companies, from each other? What can we do when we band together? What are the solutions that are possible um, so that when we can get our um, political and economic systems motivated to deal with this, what are the solutions that we want them to do? And so on the show, we're going to talk about, you know, the, the, you know, the stronger UN and the international systems and such, but we're going to talk more in detail about all these existential threats and what are the solutions that need to be put in place with each of these? Um, what do we need in order to save humanity? So I attempt to make this show very accessible to everyone. So I want the ideas here to be vigorous. We're going to have strong conversation. We're really going to dig into some things and be very thought-provoking and informative. But I want it to be accessible to everyone. So you're not going to hear a lot of jargon and huge words and acronyms and policy talk. I mean, you'll hear policy talk, but it's going to be such that anybody can understand it. That's my goal. So whether you are even a professional in one of these um, issue areas or you're you know, seasoned and have a lot of experience in them, or you're a newcomer and you're just learning about this stuff for the first time, both of you are welcome here. Um, that's the purpose, purpose of this show is to make this space where everybody can come together and have fruitful conversation about how do we save humanity from these things. So because we need this sort of grassroots citizen worldwide movement to happen, and 
I see my role as supporting that. This show might turn out being different than a typical show. In some ways it will be, like, you know, I'll make a show and you'll consume it and listen to it and conversation will happen. But I see this as my role as also as advocate or activist. Like, it's not just about having conversation, it's about getting stuff done. It's about solving problems. It's about making something happen. Because simply talking about things doesn't really change it you know, things have to happen. And so this show is going to be an exploration and and really a pushing, like we're going to push for some things. And I hope that over time, um, sort of a tribe forms and people coalesce around these issues and that I can meet you and meet others who listen to the show. And this can bring people together and that we might do some work together. So I don't know what that looks like yet, Um, I haven't mapped it all out, but I really hope that some activity forms around this and that it's not simply a show, but that it's actually a force for good and we can push for something to happen. That's my goal. What motivates me to do this is that I'm concerned that I'm going to have to witness some horrific things in my lifetime. I'm concerned that I might have to witness things that no one should have to live through and that no one should have to die from. It could get really ugly if we don't make some big changes soon. I'm even more concerned about the next generation because they have more future ahead of them. And um, sometimes I hear people, you know, my age or older saying like, sort of really excited about the next generation. Like, oh, these young people, they're so talented and innovative and energetic. They're going to solve it. It upsets me when I hear that, actually. I mean, I get it. Young people are important. We need to get them involved in all this work and the decision-making because it's their future being affected. But I think it's morally wrong for us to heap that much responsibility on the next generation. It's morally wrong for my generation to screw up everything and hand it to the next generation. I have two kids who are entering adulthood now. I love them dearly. I want them to have a good life. And I just can't bear the thought of handing them a world that's falling apart. It's not right. So I'm going to do what I can do um, to make things better. I don't know what I can pull off, but I'm going to try because that's the right thing to do. It would be far easier to just kind of hang out in my own life and watch some Netflix and go play on the weekends and, you know, drink some beer and watch football and hang with my friends and all that. Like, I'm not against leisure, mind you, but like a lot of people just avoid these issues because they're uncomfortable. And so they just handle their own life and forget about the stuff. And then it all gets worse. So I'm refusing to do that. I'm going to dig in. I'm going to try to make some things happen because I think that's the good responsible thing to do. I want to make 
a better future, both for myself in my lifetime and the next generations, because um, I think humanity is really important. And I call this show the joy of saving the human race, because as we make these changes, as we improve our world, as we protect our future, that's also a celebration of humanity. That's also saying humans are worth saving. We're worth it. We're beautiful. And um, our progress, our culture, the, the way of life we've built, um, this sort of progress and prosperity that so many people have and more and more are having, it's a beautiful thing. And we want to continue this. It's what allows us to love each other, to have relationships, to play, to have family, to enjoy life, instead of having to live in a cataclysm catastrophe that we've created for ourselves. I want us in our future to have a good life that we can enjoy instead of everything falling to shit. So this is what I'm in it for. Um, I think humanity is really worth saving. Um, and I hope that you'll join me on this and, and continue. So what's going to happen from here? Um, I've just laid out the general course of what this show is all about. Um, I'm starting this show with a series of probably 10 episodes just myself, where um, the next episode is a lot of information about the state of the world and humanity right now. Um, this has been a little more glossing it over big picture, but I'm going to give some really concrete examples and information about what's happening so that you really understand how important this stuff is, but also the sort of potential that we have. And I'm going to talk about the good things that have happened and the progress, the amazing progress that humanity has made so that you'll also see that humanity is able to solve big problems because we have before. And then from there, I'll go through various um, particular issues. So one is on climate and environment. One is on pandemics. One is on migration and refugees. One is on new technology. That's Some of it's pretty dangerous. Um, one is on war and peace and security. Uh, one is on the world economy and largely the environmental destruction that it causes. One is on also the world economy, but more about the inequality that happens and how we seem to not get resources toward solving our existential threats, and in case instead parking those resources with wealthy individuals and countries. So, um, yeah, I think that covers it. Oh, and then I'm going to wrap it up with one that is basically an overview on why I think this is completely solvable and the many. Um, good, strong trends that are happening and tools we have at our disposal to solve this stuff. So it can be pretty helpful. So, and then from there, I'm going to invite some of the smartest people in the world to come and help solve these problems. So thank you for joining me today. Um, I really appreciate you being here with me and um, listening to me and, and learning a thing or two. And uh, let's just keep it going. And in the meantime, let's try to be the best people we can be.
Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.